talking, we're using as our template, we're talking about money. But in the process, I pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to all of you, would speak to you individually, even as he's spoken to me through this word, that each of us would powerfully be ministered to today. Um, in powerfully ministering, we also want to lay the foundation for when we talk about money, um, that we also want to remember the poor. We don't want to forget the poor. And um, I, I'm really kind of um, stirred by the statistics that Andrew shared this morning. Um, we were part of a larger team at the food bank preparing and uh, repacking food, and that many people were served, and it's just the beginning. Um, Andrew and I have already begun talking about uh, forthcoming community outreaches that we want to do as a church together. I think this was great. We had 10 people from Woven show up yesterday, um, including kids, and everybody got their hands, uh, roll it, rolled up our sleeves, and we all got our hands um, into it. So it was wonderful that we were doing that, we were serving the poor, because in the economics of God's kingdom, in the economics of his kingdom, the poor come first. The poor come first. Now, when the poor come first, does that mean only giving away our stuff, that we should just give away money to the poor? I think the second principle, the foundation for this whole series, is the best way to serve the poor is to help them have on-ramps to their own wealth. I don't think at the end of the day God wants all of us to be poor because blessed are the poor and if we redistribute all of the money then basically everybody, the standard of living goes down. I don't think God's scheme is for everybody to be poor. I do think God's scheme or hope for mankind is the flourishing of all. The flourishing of all and the opportunity to flourish. Everyone should have a chance to sit under their own shade Everyone should have the chance to enjoy their own meal. So the best, way is to serve, the best way to serve the poor is to give them on-ramps and access to create wealth for themselves. But third and last, for those of us, for those of us who consider ourselves fortunate and blessed, it's reasonable and appropriate to pursue wealth, but in the end that must be motivated ultimately to serve the poor. So this is where we're starting off. And what I want to talk about today, as we talk about money, specifically I want to talk about the idea of administration, good administration. Each week we've, in this series we've talked about different things. We've talked about, you know, uh, desire or value. Today we're talking about administration. And administration is a buzzword. It's a keyword that has come up throughout this year. Throughout the last 12 months here at Woven, um, in the last 12 months, ever since we've come under this roof called Kingdom City, the word administration has come up again and again and again. It's come up because we've been studying Ephesians. And in the book of Ephesians, there is a word. There's a word, and that word is oikos. Oikos. And oikos means house. But the derivative, the, 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 uh, that root word shows up in various forms all throughout Ephesians, it's come up at Woven again and again, the administration of the house, oikonomia, where we get the word economics from, or economy. Administration is something that's been coming up again and again and again, because in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, an experiment like Kingdom City, with multiple congregations, I think what the Lord is telling all of us, 
is you need good administration. You need good administration. You need good administration. Without good administration, this whole experiment that is Kingdom City, it, it will not be able to stand. Well, let me tie this back to money. Um, I'm not an investor. I don't invest at all. I don't know much about investing. But from what little I've read, um, I've heard about something called value investing. Warren Buffett, does that name ring a bell? Warren Buffett, uh, the value investor, the, the idea behind value investing is you basically find an outstanding company at a sensible price, and then you just buy some shares, and you see it turn around. And it will slowly and surely over time uh, you'll see a return on that investment. Now, you would think, I would think, that the way to invest is to find uh, somebody that wears a black turtleneck and that has invented the next um, incredible, you know, machine or device, whatever that thing is, and then you pour all of your money into that and it's going to become the next Apple. Or they're talking about the future is AI. So we see if we can identify the next Elon Musk or something like that. You put all, that's actually contrary to what Warren Buffett uh, believes. Warren Buffett, I think he invests in like Amway or, or, or like, you know, very generic, very generic companies. But what he looks for, I could be all wrong in this, so don't quote me. This is what little I understand. But what I understand is that what he looks for, what good investors, wise investors look for, is not the killer product or this next great app. They look for companies that are well run. They look for good management. They look for good administration. If a company has solid management, they say that company is on the rise. That is what we will invest in. Because good management is an indicator of success. Now, Woven, we're a small community. I do believe that God has a strategic and specific purpose for us, and it's going to be revealed. I'm not, I don't have anything up my sleeve. I just, that's the sense I got this morning as we were worshiping. That whatever that is, that strategic purpose is being revealed. It will be revealed in this year. That's the sense that I get. But the thing that I'm proud of is that our church, when it comes to... Um, Management, when it comes to decision making, when it comes to order and infrastructure, we're a small community, but I think we have our stuff together. I think we have our stuff together. And this is something that I, I, I take a certain amount of pride in. I mean, back in Harvest, when we were in our previous situation, we established the Constitution. We established... Uh, we established the process of decision making. We have a, a very functional leadership team right now. All of these things are, I think, even for a small community, are good markers of administration, good management, good leadership. And I'm hoping that the good administration and management that's here will kind of work itself even outwardly in this whole Kingdom City experiment that we'll see even excellent management administration at all levels in this building. Administration and good leadership is a science. How we, how we lead well, how we make an organization, how we strengthen, that's what I want to talk about today. And so in your notes, you'll see three headings. And these are the three things that I want to talk about today. 
First of all, it's the makings of good management, of good administration. Secondly, is the mistakes of administration, the mistakes of administration. And third, are the moves of administration, the moves. So we have first the makings, second are the mistakes, and third are the moves, the moves of administration. So as we begin this first heading, the makings of administration, what makes, what does good management and good leadership look like, I want to take us into Luke chapter 16. If you, if you could look with me, turn to me in your Bibles if you have it, Luke chapter 16, verse 1. Luke chapter 16, verse 1 says, There was a rich man who had a manager. There was a rich man who had a manager. Basically, this is somebody that uh, is paid to manage, maybe to do his, the taxes for his, his boss, or somebody who kind of watches over the house. He balances his checkbook. He keeps his calendar in order. He manages all of his affairs. This manager, in the Greek, that word is oikonomos. Oikonomos. And I want to point this out uh, because that word oikonomos connects back to that root word oikos. See, this word oikos, it has numerous derivatives that, that have worked itself into our language this past year at Woven. Oikos, oikonomos, oikonomica, oikonomia. All of these words talk about management, administration. And the point that I really want to get across is when it comes to management and administration, there are a multiplicity of gifts. I'm 42 years old, and in this midlife of my career, I've come to the conclusion that I am not supposed to do everything. That my job as pastor is not to do every job, but that there are certain things in the oikonomica of God that I do, that I should do, but there are many things in the economics or the oikonomica, you see economics, administration, management, in God's, uh, in God's administration of the world, there are many things which others can do and should do. You see, this is the analogy of the body of Christ. The analogy of the body of Christ. Maybe I am a finger, or maybe I am a hand. Right? Maybe you are an eye, you're an eyeball, you see things. But if you decide I'm not going to function for the body of Christ as an eye, then you kind of have one eye that's looking to <laughs> You have the one lazy eye, and then the rest of the body is active, but one eye is kind of unengaged. Or maybe one arm goes limp. You see, when it comes to the management and the administration, for the body to operate in unison, everybody partakes. Everybody moves. So I want to go off kind of on this idea of, of the oikonomica, the, the oikonomia, the, the administrator, and kind of let's put, let's put that on hold for a minute, Luke chapter 16. I'm going to come back to it. But to talk about the idea, to talk about this idea of the manager, to talk about this idea of what different management looks like, and what I've done, if you can pull on the screen the four, the four um, types of administration and church leadership, 
What I've done is I've, I've come up with these four things. This does not come from a book. This does not come from, you know, John Maxwell. It does not come from any other source. This is something that I've been thinking a lot about. If you can actually put all four of them up. This is something that I've been thinking a lot about. Um, in the last couple of months, uh, as we've been not just growing here, I really believe as we've been growing in our leadership team, as our leadership team has been functioning in different ways and operating, even as we see how we're relating to this larger kingdom city body, as we're relating to this larger kingdom city body, I've thought, I've begun to have some deep ideas, some deep thoughts about what is absolutely essential for a good team to flourish. And these are the four things that I come up with. Four things that are absolutely essential in order for an organization to flourish. And these four things are, first of all, a charisma leader. I'm going to go through these one by one, one by one. The first thing, and I, I mentioned this first, um, naturally a charisma leader oftentimes is the most prominent leader, but does not necessarily always have to be the one that leads. But the first is a charisma leader. And when I talk about a charisma leader, I'm, I'm thinking, I have in mind, uh, you know, this is typically like an alpha type of personality. Whether it's an alpha male or alpha female, regardless, we're talking about somebody that steps into the room and naturally, naturally commands authority. Not authoritarianism, but naturally commands authority. Your son is just locked on. He's getting ready for his own leadership calling. It's, it's, it's awesome. He's like, he's totally fixated. So there are people, there are people in this church. There are people in this community that have that quality. If I'm forthright and honest, and I think it's important for me also to share this personally, I don't think that that is my style of leadership. I don't think that's who I am. I don't consider myself an alpha. I don't consider myself needing to be an alpha. But there are personalities who are naturally suited to whom others are drawn and others will follow their leadership naturally without force. There's no sense of exerting oneself or having to try. I think this is natural. Now it can be abused. Each of these four can be abused. Charisma leader. Charisma leader. Just think for a moment. Who comes to your mind inwoven as a charisma leader? Now, if the charisma leader says, I'm not going to operate, I'm not going to function, then what happens, you know, you, you just kind of, you know, I, for some reason I have this the lazy eye image that keeps coming to mind. Somebody that's fully functional and yet, you know, just one part is, or here's another analogy. Um, my dog. I, I, love, I love animals. You know, my beautiful dog, we went running this past weekend um, on the bayou, and I love to just let her off the leash, and she goes, and we run, and she plays, and that's, that's, that's what she does. Um, if my dog only had three legs, would I love her any less? No. Um, would she be able to run at top speed as much? Probably not as much. Charisma leaders need to be able to do their thing. Second type of leader that I identify is an executive type of leader. 
and I use that word executive, pardon the boardroom speak, I, I realize, but what I have in mind is the type of leader who understands systems. The type of leader that understands um, order, structure, naturally can, synthesize, uh, naturally can synthesize ideas into a structured outline. Tanya, I'm going to call you out here. You are a gifted executive leader. And I want you, in Jesus' name, to be released in greater and greater measure. I know that I'm the talking head, and there's a reason for that. It's because I'm the fourth one. I'm the teaching leader. I'm the one that comes up and, and goes, you know, talks about ideas. But you need to be released. And even more so in a church like Woven, where we believe in women leadership, we empower women leadership. You need to be released to lead in this community, even from the front, as an executive, as um, somebody that understands operation, that sees and can synthesize because the community needs you, because you're a dog lover too, and it would be sad if one leg was missing. So I want you, I want you to be released, equipped, empowered to do your thing for Woven because without you, we wouldn't be able to run full steam ahead. Another type of leader. There's a care leader. And when I think of the care leader, and mind you, I've thought about this a lot in the last few months. When I think about the care person, this is the type of person who is the relational glue. They're the relational glue to a team. That people, they show up because they know that this person is going to be there. They know that this person is there, and therefore, whenever I'm in this place, I feel like I'm in fa family. It feels like family. Does that, do you know what I mean? Like, you show up because when that person is there, you just feel comfortable, you feel at home. Right? You know this about you, right, Bobby? That you have that capacity. You are a glue to a team. You're a glue to a community. And I think those exact words were used even at the men's retreat. Is that right? Somebody said that? You're glue. You're sticky. And people feel connected because you're here. In that sense, you are a vital and essential part of this community. And we need your mother's kimchi. And we need... We, and everybody's laughing because even the non-Korean people here, for some reason, have received this bag of kimchi, and they even feel warm and fuzzy even though they can't eat it. Because that is a care quality. It's not just this kind of mushy, like, I care for you, but it's this actual tangible feeling. Whenever Bobby's here, I know I'm home. I know I'm with my family. Right, Anthony? You love it when Bobby falls asleep on your couch because it makes you feel home. The fourth and last type of leader is the teaching leader. And this is the type of leader that deepens community life, maybe even innovation and vision, because this is a person that works with ideas and communicates ideas. This is a teacher. I think this is my strongest gifting. I think this is where I fall in. I don't see myself as a charisma leader. I don't see myself as a care leader. I do see some aspect of, of the executive, of, of the uh, systems understanding. But I think foremost, above all, the teaching is what I recognize my role to be. And let me stress, let me stress that in any community, 
the lack of any of these legs, in the end, it, 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 you have a dog that's limping, so to speak. For example, if you have a community that has a, a charismatic leader, or if you have strong organization and systems with an executive leader, and you have a care leader and a sense of family, but there's no teaching leader, you have a, a, a community that's shallow, and that people might come and eventually they feel, I need some depth, I need a word, I need some, I need some teaching. Or conversely, if you have a teaching leader, and you have a care leader, and you have an executive leader, you have order, but we lack a charisma leader, Sometimes we lack that sense of a charge of somebody leading. We lack that sense of attractiveness, of that ability for, uh, to kind of draw onto ourselves because the, charis the charisma leader has not been activated. Or say we're missing the executive leader. We have charisma, we have the care, we have teaching, but we have disorder. There's disorder because the executive leader is not operating or not present. And therefore, there's no process of making decisions. There's lots of excitement. There's depth in the teaching. But there's complete rampant chaos. And what happens is in churches or communities like that, you have a 100% turnaround, a revolving door. Why? Because there's no system in place. There's no embracing or enfolding system. Or maybe even in the end, the same thing, if there's a lack of a care leader, if there isn't a sense of family or community, people don't stick around. So the understanding that I have, and maybe if I, could just, if I could even just ask you, if you could please just oblige me and take your phone out. And if, with your phone, excuse me, with your phone, if you could just take a quick picture of this. Because I'm not offended if you, want to do, if you decide to delete this and later on you get rid of this and say, I, I don't need this on my phone. But at least if the thought comes back to your mind sometime throughout the week and you recognize that maybe I am an arm. Maybe I am an eye. Maybe I am a foot. Maybe this is my part of the body. What was Pastor Wayne talking about? At least these, at least these four categories will come back to you. Because you fill a role. And I do believe, and I, as we were singing this morning, as, as, uh, you know, as our team was singing out, right? As Crystal was pounding away on the keys. As Aluino was banging on the drum. That word army, it was like, <laughs> there's an army rising up. That phrase is what sticks in my mind preeminently tonight. There's an army that's rising up, well-coordinated, a well-led, an impassioned, and a caring army, <laughs> an army of care. Four marks of good administration and church leadership. And really, without all four, the dog is limping. It won't be able to go full speed. So for those of you here, those of you here that identify with these, um, I want you to be activated. And in Jesus' name, I want you to be empowered as well. I want you to be empowered and released. So that's the first piece. What makes good administration... These are the four things. If I were Warren Buffett, I would invest in that. If I see all those four things, and I do think we have those four things. Mind you, I do believe that Woven has all four of those types of leaders. I do believe that Woven has all four of those types of leaders. I do. 
I don't think that any one of those is lacking. I just want all four leaders to fire ahead. That's what I want. Fire ahead. Because I think this is a I think that would be an organization worth investing in. I think that's an organization worth investing in. But mind you, having said that, are all organizations perfect? This leads to the second heading, the mistakes. Mistakes. Mistakes happen. Um, before I was in ministry, I worked for my aunt. My aunt had an import and export business. She was, uh, she was importing and exporting merchandise uh, from, from a factory in China at that time and then exporting it all around the world. Um, and uh, she, she hired me in the hopes that I would take over the company. I remember the mistakes that I made the first two years that I worked for my aunt. I mean, probably cost her a couple of thousand dollars at first. I'm sure if I stuck with it, I would have learned. But the thing is, we all make mistakes. We all make mistakes. Now listen to Luke chapter 16 as we pick back up and get back into. I know that was a long digression, and I kind of went off on this long kind of tangent with this idea of the oikonomist, the manager. But I want to circle us back into Luke chapter 16. Verse 1, there was a rich man who had an oikonomist, somebody that administered the house. And this oikonomist, this manager, was reported as wasting all of his manager's possessions. The manager was told to have squandered everything. He squandered all of the possessions. In verse 2, the rich man calls the manager, he calls the oikonomist and says, what is this I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, of your oikonomica. Give me an accounting, because you can no longer be oikonomist. You can no longer be manager. So he calls him, and he comes in, and he says, what is this that I hear? What is this report that I've received about all of this wastefulness, this squandering? That's how you can translate that word uh, for squandering. What is this dispersing, this scattering about? That word squandering is important because it appears in the previous chapter, in Luke chapter 15, in regards to the prodigal son. So in Luke chapter 15, there's a word, squandering. It appears again in chapter 16, squandering again. It's talking about the prodigal sons, those who messed up in life, those who made mistakes, Those who screwed up. And here in chapter 16, it's important for us to recognize the, rep the repetition, the repeating of that word squandering, because when you read chapter 16 in this prodigal of the unrighteous steward, it's a little confusing. We wonder who is, who is the manager? Who is the one that does the squandering? Who is the one that makes the mistake? Friends, I'm going to just spell it out and give you the answer right now. I believe, I believe that the one that messed up big time is us. It's us. It's not the Pharisees that he's talking about. It's us. We are the prodigals. We are the wasteful managers. We are the last-minute latecomers. We are the ones that rose late and therefore don't deserve the early bird's worm. We are the ones who squander. And there's a thing about this that I'm guessing. I'm guessing about a lot of you. If you're like me, 
you were really, really hard on yourself. How many of you, like, you, 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 you can even just blink at me. Like, I'm, I'm really hard on myself. Like, in a sense, um, you're, you're gentle on others. And you're easy on other people, but on yourself, you're really, really harsh. And there's a sense where it's like, um, that's the only righteous way to be. I'm really, really harsh on me. But you have to understand, we make mistakes. We all make mistakes. We all make mistakes. And until we're even gentle on ourselves, we won't really understand. We won't fully understand the grace that's behind these parables. The prodigal son, the unrighteous steward. We are all the ones who make the mistakes. So, who is the squander? Who's the one that makes the mistake? I believe it's us. I believe it's all of us. Because at the end of the day, you have one of four leaders. You're either the charisma, executive care, or teaching. You're going to make a mistake somewhere or another. A good executive leader might make a mistake in balancing the books. A teaching leader might say something wrong. A charisma leader might abuse their authority. A care leader might neglect somebody. And the point that I want to make, if you could just hone in on this, listen to this, is at the end of the day, in this community, we are going to make mistakes. Whatever type of leader you are, whatever type of personality you are, the other person is going to make a mistake. And the person that you see in front of you is not a finished product. That's so important. That when you see this person... And you say, man, she really royally screwed up. Or goodness, he keeps making the same mistake. Now understand, five years from now, five years from now, that person may not be the same person they are at this moment. They're a work in progress. There are going to be mistakes. In the community, there are going to be mistakes made by others. And until we recognize with grace until we're even able to show grace to ourselves and the mistakes that we make ourselves, we cannot function as a community of grace. The lesson in this is that the mistakes of administration or the, the administrator that makes the mistake is all of us. It's all of us. When Jesus talks about the squanderer who wastes all of the master's possessions, Jesus speaks not about the Pharisees, not about the scribes, not about Herod. He's talking about the disciples. When he talks about the prodigal son, he's talking about the disciples. He's talking about you and I. Are you a disciple this morning? Are you a disciple this morning? Then grace is extended to you, but you must also extend grace to the other people in the community. This is discipleship. You recognize grace to me, and you're able to show it to others. Why? Because they are a work in progress, and they're not a finished product standing in front of us. So in any organization, there's going to be mistakes. There's going to be mistakes, but the grace, the grace to see each other through, that is what takes the organization to the next level. You hear that? In the end, it's not about having a stellar team. 
of all four types, in the end, it's the grace to recognize that we all make mistakes that takes an organization to the next level. The grace to recognize the mistakes is what takes us to the next level. Friends, I hope that you're hearing, you're hearing that really the most important message that I can convey to you today is not what type are you or what role do you fill, but it's that what's needed is forgiveness, what's needed is understanding, what's needed is compassion, what's needed is the recognition that all of us are growing. All of us, myself included, are growing. And this leads us to Luke chapter 16. We continue with verse 3. And here I want to wrap up with this third and last setting. So we started off talking about the makings and then the mistakes. Now I want to conclude with the moves, the moves of administration, the operatings. What does this look like? In verse 3, the manager. Oh, gosh, I messed up big time. What am I going to do? My, my, master, my master is taking the management away from me. What am I going to do for a living? What am I going to do for work now? How am I going to make, how am I going to feed my hungry stomach? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm not bold enough to beg. And so in verse 4, the unrighteous manager, he says, I know what I'll do. When I'm removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes if I do this. So what, do you, what does he do? He calls, he calls some of his master's debtors. And he, and he says to the first one, how much do you owe my master? And that person says, a hundred measures of oil. And he says, okay, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Just write 50. 50? You serious? Yeah, just 50. That's a 50% discount. Just don't worry about it. Okay, quickly, he writes him 50. Fine, and he's off the hook. He says to the second person, how much do you owe? And the second person says, um, I owe a hundred measures of wheat. A hundred measures of wheat. And he says, take your bill and write 80. 80? You're giving me a 20% discount? Yeah. Are you sure? Don't worry about it. Thank you. And in the end, he gives one person 50% off. He gives another person 20% off. And he shows a personal favor. And they say, thank you so much. I owe you one. I owe you one. And in verse 8, it says, the master saw this and he praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. He praised what he did for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. In other words, the master sees what, this, what, uh, he sees what his, his manager did. He says, you did what? You gave them a 50% discount? Good job. He applauds him. Now think about that. Why would the master say that? Why would the master say, you gave them a 50% discount, you gave them a 20% discount? Good job. There's multiple interpretations. Here's what I think. I think that he praised the steward for two reasons. Number one, the steward acted in his own interest. He acted wisely because he said, I need to look out, I need to protect myself because in the end, if I'm not wise, I will end up on the street begging. So anybody who acts wisely and is motivated in their own interest, you, you applaud that because this is a person who's thinking about what's safe, what's wise, what's next. This is called shrewdness. But the second reason I think that the master applauds him is possibly, maybe just because those two people were delinquent in their payments. 
And whether it's 50% off or whether it's 20% off, this master has been waiting for payment for them, from them for a long time. Some even believe that it's possible that that 50% and that 20% was actually the interest owed on the accounts. So in essence, what they were just paying back was the principal. And they were forgiven their interest. Now, this is a smart move, if you're following this. Those of you that you, you're, you're on top of money. This is wise. Why is it wise? Because with one swoop, he killed two birds. On the one hand, he got people to pay his master back. And secondly, he got into the good graces of people's homes. Friends, I think the message here that we're seeing is when it comes to administration, you must exercise wisdom. As you go to the workplace, as you go back into your, all of your operating, all of, your, all of the places where you need to work or move, you need to be smart. You need to be shrewd. It's interesting because when we talk in the church, I know this, many times I've heard it said, even I've, I've said myself, but the church is not like a business. The church is not a business. The church is not a business, which is true. We are not driven by economic principles in the end. We're not driven by, by the dollar. We're not driven by profit. We're driven by completely different motives. So the answer is yes, we are not like a business. However, However, what I've come to understand is that businesses, for some reason, run so much better many times than churches. Many, many times businesses run more clearly. They operate with clear lines. I know that they're not all perfect. Some of you might shake your hand, not my office. Not my office. But here's what happens. If your office does not run smoothly, what happens? What happens to your company if there's something unethical? They, they get bankrupt. And you have a fire under your butt. And the fire is, we want to survive. We want to keep making money. So there's this constant drive for improvement, improvement, self-improvement. The church does not operate under that same fire. We're not driven by revenue. We're driven by a completely different economic that favors the weak, that favors the poor. But here's what happens. Because we favor the weak, we favor the poor, sometimes we get lazy. And our administration is not sharp. Why? Because in the end, nobody notices anyway. In the end, I can make decisions however I want. In the end, we don't have to follow due process. Why? Because it doesn't really matter. Whatever the pastor says goes, or however we function, or these numbers are going to get fudged because nobody knows enough to, to challenge it. But the thing is, that's not good for an organization. It's not good for an organization to not have good administration. And so when Jesus says, when he says in that last verse, in verse 8, the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light, I think what he is really challenging us towards is this church, the church, must become a place where the administration is exemplary, where we can see that the sons of light are not left holding the bill saying, duh. Because at the end of the day, friends, if the church is not administered well, the church can get into big trouble. Just look at the Catholic church right now. Look at the Catholic church right now. 
read the headline. A lack of due procedure, a lack of due process, a lack of administration can get a community into trouble. Oh, friends. There's a lot of work. There's a lot of work. Not just for Woven, for Kingdom City. There's a need for good administration. There's a need for good management. Let me read to you, as I wrap up here, the very last thing Jesus, or the last part, the last part of this parable in verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me. Jesus says something so striking to me here. He says something that, that really um, kind of blows me away. Because keep in mind, so many times, all throughout the Gospels, Jesus is saying, if you are rich, you have to give everything away. Or he's saying things like, it's e the, the rich, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He says all these really terrible, harsh, really impossible things for rich people. But then he turns around and says this in verse 9. This is coming out of the same mouth. I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. In other words, use money. Use your money. So that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. Uh, isn't that an interesting statement? It blows me away, because here's Jesus on the one hand saying, wealth is bad, wealth is bad, rich people bad, rich people don't go to heaven. And then on the other hand, here he's instructing his disciples, use your money, use money, use wealth, use money for eternal purposes. And this is awesome. <laughs> it's awesome because I think what we have here is a balancing statement to wealth. That no, Jesus is not always anti-wealth. He says if you have it, use it, but don't be used by it. If you have wealth, use it, but don't be used by it. Use the wealth, but don't be used by it. And this gets us back to the foundational principle I laid out in the beginning. If our money-making is for the purpose of serving others, then it is appropriate and reasonable to pursue wealth. Use it. Don't be used by it. I mean, it's an, interest, it's an interesting age when we look to the secular world for examples of what, what financial stewardship really looks like. But I've read somewhere that Warren Buffett is planning to give away 99% of his, of, his, uh, of his whole income. I mean, Bennett, were you the one that told me that? Is that correct? Warren Buffett's planning to give away 99%. <laughs> Very interesting. How about a 99% tithe? Good Lord. Use it. Don't be used by it. That's the message. Use it. Don't be used by it. Because in the end, 
in the end, how we use our finances, I think, is an evidence of how we're living as citizens of the kingdom. How we use our money is an evidence of how we are citizens.